This is a five alarm fire. Law clerk issues are like the civil rights issue of the legal community. And we continue to go on deifying judges perpetuated on law school campuses, perpetuated by legal employers. What I am doing at the Legal Accountability Project is shifting the conversation, changing the dialogue around clerkships from this weird deification of the judiciary to one of honest dialogue about the full range of clerkship experiences. A lack of transparency in the clerkship application process that causes far too many law clerks to enter unsafe work environments because they lack information about judges. A lack of diversity in the clerkship applicant pool, judicial chambers, and legal profession. And an outrageous lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. When you know about judges who mistreat their clerks, you should be sharing that with the federal judiciary, with the ABA, with some other channel. We cannot keep burying our heads in the sand and protecting these misbehaving judges. Welcome back to the DEI Podcast. I'm Max Gaston. My guest for today is Aliza Schatzman, president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit organization with the mission of ensuring that law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who do not. Aliza is an attorney and advocate based in Washington, D.C., who writes and speaks regularly about judicial accountability, clerkships, and diversity in the courts. In March 2022, Aliza submitted written testimony for a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing about the lack of workplace protections in the federal judiciary. In it, she detailed her personal experience with gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation by a former D.C. judge. Aliza provided her written testimony in order to advocate for the Judiciary Accountability Act, legislation that would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees, including law clerks. Aliza and I will talk about her experiences with gender discrimination and retaliation as a law clerk, and the steps that the Legal Accountability Project is taking to help create greater safety, transparency, accountability, and diversity in the clerkship experience. Here is my interview with Aliza Schatzman. Aliza, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. So I want to start off by having you talk a little bit about your personal story and experiences as a law clerk. But before we go into that, can you just give our audience and those who might not be aware some insight onto, you know, what even is a clerkship? You know, for those of us who work in the law, we know that federal judicial clerkships are these very attractive, coveted opportunities for career advancement, but for people who might be less familiar, what is a clerkship? Why are they so popular? And you know what made you interested in pursuing one? Sure. So a clerkship is when a new attorney, typically fresh out of law school, perhaps with a few years work experience, gets to spend a year or two working closely with and learning from a judge. And while tasks vary based on chambers to chambers, most law clerks do research, they draft orders, opinions, and bench memos. They go to court with the judge. So for folks like me who aspire to become trial attorneys, you learn about the best and the worst of advocacy by learning from the attorneys who appear before the court. And then afterwards, you get to learn from the judge about what they found persuasive and not. So clerkships are really messaged, particularly on law school campuses, as a gold star, as a necessary checkbox for your next legal job. Law firms offer enormous bonuses to folks who've clerked. If you look at most government job descriptions, they require one year of work experience, which is basically a euphemism for a clerkship requirement. Mm. And unfortunately, clerkships are kind of messaged as this unadulterated good. And students are told, apply super broadly, accept the first clerkship you're offered. They really don't have transparency into the work environment they are entering. And it's a particularly consequential legal job because judges are the most powerful members of our profession. And as we'll get into with my personal experience, judges have enormous power over their former clerks' careers, meaning law students need to be super mindful about who they clerk for in a way they cannot be right now. And we'll talk more about this later on, but I think it's fair to say, and one of the things that you just mentioned is that there isn't really a lot of visibility into how judges select their clerks. Can you just give us a general sense of 
of how law students actually get clerkships in the first place and what the process of applying for a judicial clerkship was like for you in particular? So how students get clerkships. Most law schools have a clerkship advisor and a dean of career services to assist with advising. Unfortunately, what I say to law schools is that no school knows about all the judges students will apply to. Judges are appointed and elected every single year, and every school has gaps in their information and advising. So the timeline and process is a little different for state and federal clerkships. If you're applying for federal clerkships, many judges accept applications on OSCAR, the online system for clerkship application and review. Now, for judges who hire on plan, they will start looking at applications from hundreds of applicants to L. June. Unfortunately, many judges hire off plan um, and students really have no visibility into that timelines or who is accepting applications. And students are encouraged to apply super broadly to 50 or 100 judges. And it's really just uh, one professor characterized it as musical chairs. And you want to be one of the last ones standing with a clerkship when judges have selected their clerks. Mm. State court clerkships, even more decentralized. Obviously, 50 states in D.C., every judge hires differently. Um, students get some information from their law schools, but it's even more on them to identify the judges to apply to. So as you're hearing me go through this, I mean, students have a lot on their plates. They're doing school, they're doing extracurriculars, they're applying for post-grad jobs and summer internships. The clerkship process is this enormously time-consuming thing. And so I think any effort at standardizing processes benefits students as well as law schools. For me, I was a transfer to WashU Law, so I did apply for federal clerkships pre-plan on OSCAR, didn't get too many interview offers, but I knew that I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, so I pretty quickly focused on the D.C. courts, which are Article One federal courts, but they hear cases and local issues. So I spent my 3L fall interning at the Department of Justice in D.C., uh, which was across the street from the D.C. Superior Courthouse. So I literally walked like 50 applications to all the judges over to the courthouse and slipped them in the mailboxes. And I was literally leaving the courthouse when I got a call from the judge I clerked for's then clerks inviting me to come in an interview. So, yeah, from then, and that was early September of 2018, did two rounds of interviews. Uh, the judge was affiliated with WashU Law. Professors knew him, so they made calls on my behalf. As most law clerks will tell you, that's how partially how they got their clerkships. I accepted the clerkship on the spot. Um, I didn't realize at the time that other WashU Law students had clerked for this judge. The way I got information about him was to speak with AUSAs and PDs who'd appeared before him. Um, which is not a great way to get information about judges, but that's what was available to me. And so turning to your your personal experience as a law clerk with that judge, you've been a strong proponent of workplace protections for judiciary employees and for law clerks in particular. Can you talk a little bit about what your actual experience was for um, for the time that you were a judicial, a judicial law clerk? Sure. So... I started this clerkship in August of 2019, and clerkships were messaged to me at WashU Law as this unadulterated good where I would develop this lifelong mentor-mentee relationship for this position was going to confer only professional benefits. Um, unfortunately, that is not what happened at all. Beginning just weeks in, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was bossy, aggressive, that I had personality issues, stuff that would never be said of a male co-clerk. Hmm. Um, the day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, that anniversary is coming up this week, uh, he called me into his chambers, got in my face and said, you're bossy and I know bossy because my wife is bossy. Wow. I just remember, I remember being devastated, crying myself to sleep at night, crying on the walk to work. This was my first job at a law school. The judge seemed to be singling me out for mistreatment. 
Um, I confided in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible for my dream job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. My workplace in the D.C. courts did not have an employee dispute resolution plan that might have enabled me to seek assistance or get reassigned. So March 2020, pandemic happens. I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. And the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up in late April, told me he was firing me because I lacked respect for him and made him uncomfortable, but he didn't want to get into it. And he hung up on me. So I tried to use the DC courts channels that were available to me. I reached out to HR. They said there was nothing they could do. HR doesn't regulate judges who are Senate confirmed. Then they said I should have known I was an at will employee. So then I reach out to my law school, to WashU Law, seeking assistance. And that's when I found out the judge had a history of harassing his clerks, that law school officials, including several professors and the clerkships director, who still works at WashU Law, advising students on clerkships, knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, decided not to share that with me because they wanted another student to clerk. This is obviously all really devastating takes me a year to get back on my feet, secure my dream job at the DC US Attorney's Office, and move back to DC in the summer of 2021, intending to launch my career as a prosecutor, put all this behind me. I was two weeks into training at the USAO when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. So I remember crying on the phone with USAO leadership, DC courts leadership. They wouldn't tell me what the judge had said. They said the decision was final. So I filed a judicial complaint, hired attorneys, and participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through that, we found out he was on administrative leave, pending an investigation into other misconduct. At the time, he'd filed the negative reference. USAO was never alerted to that. January 2022, after the judge was removed from the bench for other reasons, he issued a clarifying statement to the USAO addressing some of his outrageous claims. But by then, the damage had been done, and I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And I share this experience a lot now on law school campuses. I shared this at your law school last year, among others. And I always seek to underscore that my negative clerkship experience is not rare, but it is one that is rarely shared publicly due to the legal community's culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. Eliza, something I think may be useful for us to explore, given all that you've just said, is the power dynamic in the relationship between judges and their law clerks. And maybe even more specifically, exploring that dynamic when it intersects with gender identity. And so putting that in greater context, data from the National Association of Law Placements reports that first, only a third of federal court judges are women. And second, that men consistently outnumber women in having federal judicial clerkships. And so the federal judiciary is not a context on the judge's side or on the law clerk's side where we have parity between men and women in the first place. Now, with that in mind, I've heard you talk previously and you mentioned just now about how the judge you clerked for would describe you using words like bossy, aggressive, um, you know, and things that when directed towards women are often accompanied by a layer of misogyny and the double standards for how we label behaviors of men and women differently in the workplace. And just listening to what you were saying, when you stop and consider the reputational harm a judge can inflict on a law clerk... You know, not to mention the fact that, hey, this is your boss and the person who's guaranteeing your paycheck. The power dynamic seems really precarious for a law clerk to step into with a judge who maybe in the most anodyne of instances is just unaware of their biases and how they come across. Um, And at worst is going to say something to you like, you're bossy. And you know how I know? Because my wife is bossy, you know, blatantly abusing their power and their position against you. Uh, And that disparity, I think, can make it really hard for you to feel comfortable raising your voice and advocating for yourself. 
And so could you just elaborate um, on what that power dynamic is like um, between judges and law clerks and how gender and maybe even age dynamics can influence that? Definitely. I mean, you put it perfectly. There is an enormous power disparity between a life-tenured Senate-confirmed judge and a fresh-out-of-law-school clerk in their first legal job who is totally dependent on this judge for career advancement and even, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later, your potential employers are still going to contact your judge, whether they are listed as a reference or not. This makes it enormously difficult to speak out, even in the face of outrageous workplace mistreatment. Layer on top of that, it is a small hierarchical workplace. A few law clerks work long hours behind locked doors in stressful circumstances. There are no workplace protections. Law clerks are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is outrageous. Employee dispute resolution is their only avenue to seek redress, and it's underutilized because judges are overseeing their colleagues and they are notoriously unwilling to discipline them. Law clerks are dissuaded from filing a complaint. They are dissuaded from speaking out by the legal profession, by their law schools, by everybody. They are told that the right professional decision is to stay silent, to keep your head down and move on. And what I see when I interface with so many mistreated law clerks is that fear, 5, 10, 20 years later, of the judge, of the judge's law clerk family, that is what silences clerks. And you're correct that there are gender dynamics and age dynamics at play here, but I do want to point out that female and non-white judges are not exempt from these problematic behaviors. I encounter lots of white male clerks who are mistreated by female judges. Mm. Um, it's on everybody to do better in the legal profession. It starts with holding our judiciary to the highest ethical standards, not the lowest. Something I don't think we talk about nearly enough in the legal profession is the topic of mental health and well-being. And as I was listening to you describe the harrowing experience of having to be a law clerk for this judge who was creating this hostile work environment for you, then being fired by him on a very brief phone call and then a year later having to suffer the reputational harm he inflicted on you by losing your dream job at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office because of his negative recommendation. I'm wondering if you can explain how your clerkship experience impacted your mental health and what your perspective is on the state of mental health for law clerks in general, because as you just mentioned, male law clerks face harassment and discrimination too, Female judges can also perpetrate discrimination, and so the potential for mistreatment in the clerkship experience on both sides is not something that is limited by gender, race, or really any identity factor. This is such a great question. Um, law clerks who are mistreated suffer enormous mental health and physical health consequences even years later, just the psychological toll that mistreatment takes. And it's something that clerks will take into their next jobs. When I speak with former clerks, the way they interface with a future employer is just, it's fear, it is the expectation that they are going to be berated and belittled, that their work must be subpar because my judge berated me days in and days out about my subpar work. Like they're taking that into their next job. It affects your relationship with your law degree. It affects your relationship with the law. I mean, I was fired at the height of the pandemic. I was staying at home with my family. It was a challenging time for all of us. Um, I was trying to get back on my feet as quickly as possible. It took a year for me to do that. Um, I think not enough is talked about in terms of the mental health toll this takes on law clerks. So you go from losing your clerkship in one of the worst ways imaginable, amazingly picking yourself up and landing your dream job at the DC US Attorney's Office, then losing that job because of the negative recommendation this judge gave about you during your background check, requiring you to then have to pick up the pieces yet again. How do you get to the point where 
you are now the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. That is a great question. So going through the judicial complaint process was one of the most difficult times of my life. It was incredibly painful and isolating. And I was regularly re-victimized by this terrible judicial conduct commission that's basically set up to protect misbehaving judges, where a female investigator told me things like, I must have done something wrong because the judge hired me in the first place. So pretty early in that process, I began writing a law journal article about my experience. I wrote it and submitted it over Labor Day weekend. Um, It's published in the UCLA Journal of Gender and Law. And working through my trauma by writing about it and doing research on the lack of workplace protections and the laws that could be put in place to change that was empowering and invigorating. Um, During that time, I also began interfacing with House and Senate Judiciary Committee offices about the Judiciary Accountability Act, which is legislation that would extend Title VII to law clerks. So I was sharing my experience and advocating for that. Um, And then I had an opportunity to share my experience sooner than I anticipated in written testimony before the House Judiciary's Court Subcommittee. In the weeks following my written testimony, the response was very positive, which I appreciated because previous law clerks who've spoken out have not enjoyed so much support. And so I began thinking through some ideas to further my advocacy work on behalf of clerks which led me to have some initial conversations with a couple dozen law school deans and clerkship directors about resources they use to help guide students toward beneficial clerkship experiences and to avoid judges who harass their clerks, which eventually compelled me to launch a legal accountability project to address issues I personally experienced as a law student and a law clerk. A lack of transparency in the clerkship application process that causes far too many law clerks to enter unsafe work environments because they lack information about judges, a lack of diversity in the clerkship applicant pool, judicial chambers, and legal profession, and an outrageous lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. It blows my mind to realize that the federal judiciary is exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Title VII is the landmark anti-discrimination law that protects employees from gender discrimination, harassment, discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, you know, retaliation in the workplace. And so to think that judiciary employees, including law clerks, can't sue and seek damages for abuse and harassment they suffer in the workplace, be it at the hands of judges or other people, and can basically get no redress in the courts for harms that are done to their careers, their reputations, their earning potential. You know, all of these protections that are afforded every other citizen to guard against discrimination in the workplace under Title VII just aren't extended to law clerks and other judiciary employees. It's shocking to say the least, and it also makes me wonder Where then does the protection and safeguarding come from for law students who go on to be law clerks? You know, if Title VII is not available, then what is in place to help protect students from stepping into these professional relationships with specific judges who are likely to be abusive to them? And while it's no perfect answer to the problem, for me at least, one of the first solutions that comes to mind is, well, law schools. And the things that law schools can do to warn their students on the front end. So from the perspective of the Legal Accountability Project, what do you think is the role of law schools in helping to create greater protections for students who will go on to become law clerks? So you make an excellent point. It is outrageous that judges are above the laws they enforce. And look, Title Seven. Back when it was passed in 1964, it only applied to private employers. But back in 1995, it was extended to the other two branches of government, the executive and Congress. And at that time, the judiciary was just vociferously opposed to being regulated. They have maintained that position since, and they've gotten away with it. I think because some members of Congress kind of cower in the face of judiciary leadership, 
who do not represent rank-and-file judges who are generally supportive of Title VII and judicial accountability. And they continue to make these crazy separation of powers arguments, which I say crazy because the judiciary goes to Congress every year for their budget, so we're not totally separated. Um, it's really outrageous. And there is a former federal public defender in North Carolina, Karen Strickland, who is suing judiciary officials right now for outrageous harassment and retaliation with novel constitutional claims because she, as a public defender, is also unprotected by Title VII. It is a real outrage. It sends a message to judges that you are unaccountable, that you are untouchable. I think law schools really need to get engaged on these issues. Now, on the front end, it is about increasing access to candid, transparent information about clerkships. We'll talk about what LAP is doing on this front, and it's an, it's an initiative that I think every law school should participate in. But law schools are the gatekeepers of the clerkship information. They are the ones students look to for information about judges. And as I interface with about 80 law schools on these issues, I know that law schools do not uniformly share information about judges who mistreat their clerks with students. Now, there are just genuine gaps in information. They don't know about all the judges. Mm. Then there's the more nefarious lack of information sharing, whereby law schools want to make sure that students are getting clerkships. They don't want to piss off judges who are hiring their students, even judges known to mistreat their clerks. Mm. And too many law schools message a challenging clerkship, that's in quotes, which is a euphemism for mistreatment, as worth it for the prestige. That is terrible, terrible messaging, and we need to stop doing that. Law schools on the front end should share the candid information with students, encourage them to make an informed career decision, but should not message that mistreatment is worth it for the prestige. On the back end, they should be empowering law clerks who are mistreated to file complaints. An EDR complaint, a Judicial Conduct and Disability Act complaint, this is the only way to hold judges accountable for misconduct. And I know that no law school is encouraging their clerks to file complaints. And I also think law schools, this is something I've written about in some legal scholarship, we should have some reporting obligations for them. When you know about judges who mistreat their clerks, you should be sharing that with the federal judiciary, with the ABA, with some other channel. We cannot keep burying our heads in the sand and protecting these misbehaving judges. So, law schools have a huge role to play, and they are not living up to their expectation to shape the next generation of leaders and thinkers. They are not living up to their duty of care to all their students. It's just so interesting to me, when you look at this from the law school's point of view, this need to support the the law school as an institution and promote clerkships, which frankly is something that could help a law school's rank and obviously would make them very interested in having more of their students clerk. But balancing that against the need to protect students and to utilize transparency to safeguard uh, what will happen to their students when they go on to clerk and how it seems that in many instances, maybe the balance of those two priorities tends to shift in the direction of what's going to promote the school more so than what's going to keep the students safe and how we view that so casually as, well, this is just the way that it's always been. You know, it's sort of a cultural thing to understand that you're going to have to endure some hard blows. And I find that really fascinating because no one who steps into the practice of law has any assumption that this is going to be a cakewalk. But you don't think it's going to be discrimination and retaliation when you think about it as challenging. You think about the academic rigor that it's going to take in order to be successful at a clerkship. That is why my nonprofit works with law schools. I think they have historically been part of the problem, sending students into clerkships they know or suspect are bad to promote the law school. Um, but they can be part of the solution. They are the solution. Um, and yes, I hear over and over, not only from law students who get this, but even the law school clerkship directors and deans themselves, that it is about promoting the school. And what do judges care about? What do professors care about is more important than student needs. That is so outrageous. 
considering mm. how much money and time and effort law students spend on their legal careers. Law schools need to care more about their students, but these things aren't mutually exclusive because most judges are doing the right thing and law, law schools should keep sending them clerks. Judges who are doing the wrong thing shouldn't be judges. So the idea that schools are cowering in the face of known harassers is so troubling. I'm not sure why they care so much about those relationships. When we talk about schools saying, I want to protect my relationships with the judiciary more so than my students, what we're really saying is, I don't care if some of my students are harassed. We're going to keep sending those judges clerks. Hmm. Everybody should find that outrageous. Everybody should call that out. Unfortunately, students are not always empowered and in a position to call that out because they need the law school for career advancement. They need the clerkship director to help them find a clerkship. I am happy to be in that role working within the system, but also critiquing it. Lisa, it's so interesting as well to have this conversation with you around judicial accountability when at the same time in the country, there is a conversation happening around judicial ethics. Uh, and case in point, public trust in the courts is at an all-time low, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett only recently became the second member of the Supreme Court, joining Justice Elena Kagan to explicitly support the adoption of a SCOTUS ethics code. And so going back to some of the things that you were saying earlier, it just sort of seems to me like I don't know, Lisa, somewhere in the history of the United States, we as a country reasoned that judges were just going to be these demigod-like, infallible figures who could always be, you know, self-regulating and upright. And, you know, they could never do things like harass or discriminate against or retaliate against their law clerks or engage in other practices that, you know, we as mere mortals are prone to sometimes do. And so, of course, there was no need to extend Title VII to the federal judiciary. But it seems at least now that more voices are emerging to talk about instances of judicial misconduct. And we're learning that judges are human, too, and they have biases and they can abuse power and they can discriminate and do other really bad things. What do you make of the state of the judiciary and what are maybe the shifting perceptions and expectations that we in society have of judges as it relates to accountability and ethics? So we should not ever talk about judicial ethics and judicial accountability without talking about law clerks, the public servants who support the daily functioning of our courts and yet who lack basic workplace protections. Some of the loudest voices for judicial ethics on the SCOTUS front um, rarely, if ever, talk about law clerk issues, which is an enormous disservice. And I think even some of those progressive voices are protecting progressive harassers, which is a huge problem. Um, the state of the judiciary is not good. Um, the Judicial Conference, the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, the Judiciary Lobby wield enormous power, even though they don't represent the views of rank-and-file judges, and this is precluding reform. This is a five-alarm fire. Law clerk issues are like the civil rights issue of the legal community. And we continue to go on deifying judges perpetuated on law school campuses, perpetuated by legal employers. What I am doing at the Legal Accountability Project is shifting the conversation, changing the dialogue around clerkships from this weird deification of the judiciary to one of honest dialogue about the full range of clerkship experiences. Can you talk uh, more pointedly, Eliza, about what the specific uh, major initiatives are that you're working on at the Legal Accountability Project? Yeah, so our major initiative this year, and when we launched, I didn't think this would be the only thing I would do, but it has become the focus, is a centralized clerkships database, legal tech that democratizes information about judges. So law students have more information about more judges before they make what's clearly a really consequential career decision about clerking. I'll speak with law students, and my favorite question to ask them is, so how do you get information about judges? 
And spoiler alert, whether you go to a T5, a regional school, whether you go to Notre Dame Law School, there's not enough information about judges accessible to you as a student. That mm. is terrible. That means too many students either enter an unsafe work environment because they lack the information they need, or they decide not to clerk. And that has enormous career implications too, as we just talked about. So law students will typically go through the ways they try to get info about judges. Google, talking to people, talking to my law school. Think who is going to respond to outreach. Think who your law school is going to connect you with. People who had a positive clerkship experience. The people who had a negative experience are notoriously unwilling to share that with anybody, including the law schools who facilitated the clerkship. So what we are trying to do is take clerkship information sharing out of law school's hands. We are sending a post-clerkship survey to law clerks across the country that asks a variety of stuff you might want to know before clerking, how the judge provides feedback, what kind of writing and courtroom experience you'll get, what's a judge like as a manager. We ask about mistreatment. That's something law schools have been notoriously unwilling to ask about. And we are an anonymous, verified third-party vendor. So law clerks who are mistreated are finally feeling empowered and safe to share their clerkship experience with the next generation of aspiring clerks. When this goes live, this school year, law schools can pay a small subscription fee and in exchange, their students can log into this database and get access to thousands of survey responses about thousands of judges. This initiative just vastly increases the breadth and candor of information accessible not only to students, but also to clerkship advisors. And while transparency benefits every single student, from the most liberal to the most conservative, from coming in 1L with a clerkship all lined up to being first gen and not knowing what a clerkship is, it's going to particularly benefit historically marginalized groups who disproportionately lack the formal networks and information channels that help their peers get clerkships. Yet they have unique considerations, and this is a diversity podcast, we're talking about where they're going to clerk. And that includes, does the judge hire diverse candidates? And are they sensitive to my diverse identity? So that's what we're doing, and we're launching it this year. And I have just been blown away by the response from clerks filling out our survey telling me this is the first time they feel empowered to share their experience. This is the solution to the lack of transparency in clerkship advising. This is the solution to workplace mistreatment in the judiciary. And so the main areas of mission for the Legal Accountability Project are, as you were talking about, transparency, accountability, and diversity. And we've already discussed gender and power dynamics in clerkships, but going more broadly, there was a recent publication, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of, Law Clerk Section and Diversity, Insights from 50 Sitting Judges and the Federal Courts of Appeal, uh, which was put together by Judges Jeremy Fogel and uh, Goodwin Liu, alongside Professor Mary Hoops. And they observed in their, uh, in their study that the demographics of law clerks actually don't align with the student population, not only by gender, but also by things like race and ethnicity. And I'm just curious... Because the numbers are not great in the first place when it comes to um, the percentages of students of color, for example, in law schools. And to think that those numbers, which are already not great, are likely even lower when it comes to judicial clerkships. How do you think that the lack of diversity in judicial clerkships impacts the experience overall and creates a greater need for judicial accountability? Great question. So... Judge Fogel and Justice Liu's article is great. I reviewed it for Jotwell. It's forthcoming in the Harvard Law Review. Everybody should read it. It is insights from 50 appellate judges about their hiring practices, some liberal, some conservative, talking about how they think about diversity and diversity defined really broadly. So not just gender and gender identity and race, but law school, geographic, political affiliation, disability, veteran status, all kinds of ways to diversify the profession. Law clerks are overwhelmingly white. I think 79% of federal clerks, according to NALP data, were white. They're disproportionately male, 72% white among state court clerks. This has enormous implications for the face of the legal profession because today's law clerks are tomorrow's prosecutors, 
public defenders, big law partners, law professors, and judges themselves. So diversifying the profession is fundamentally about diversifying law clerk hires. Now, why have clerkships resisted efforts at diversity? Well, first, the federal judiciary does not release any data on diversity in law clerk or federal public defender hiring, which creates a lack of accountability. We cannot craft solutions to address these problems until we know what the problems are. But as we talked about, diverse students come in not necessarily knowing what a clerkship is, why they should get one, how to get one. And that's not to generalize, but I think many first-gen students in particular, no judges in the family, no lawyers in the family, don't know how to get this coveted legal job, and they also have financial considerations that may preclude them from pursuing a clerkship. We need to increase the information access for them in order to diversify judicial clerkships. But this is also related to judicial accountability because mistreatment disproportionately affects historically marginalized groups, women, non-white students, and clerks. And so it is a judicial accountability issue that needs to be addressed as well. And one of the things that was discussed at length in the study on law clerk diversity by Judge Fogel and Justice Liu is how a lot of judges actually do prioritize prioritize diversity, or at least they try to as a first principle, but that despite their interest in promoting racial and ethnic diversity among the ranks of clerks, they actually aren't that successful in diversifying their own chambers. And, you know, you talked about this a little bit in terms of the struggle that students of color might experience, or maybe first-generation students or low-income students in terms of procuring these clerkships. But from the perspective of the judges themselves, what do you think the the mismatch is here between the aspiration to diversify their chambers and um, the actual practice itself not leading to that when it comes to creating more diversity among law clerks? Great question. So this is what I, something I talk about with judges a lot. It's that their pool is not diverse enough. They are constrained in their hiring. So what that study talked about is that the judges who successfully diversify are very intentional. They're out and about in the community. They are involved with student affinity groups, BALSA, LALSA, SALSA. They are at events. They are talking to students. So that is important as well. But another aspect of being intentional is hiring outside our preconceived notions, outside the top five law schools, outside the top 5% of the class, and going beyond these professor-judge relationships, whereby a handful of white male professors from the T5 are sending their white male judge friends, candidates who they think would be, quote, good fits. But that is a euphemism for discrimination, because who's going to be a good fit in the perception of a white male professor and a white male judge? Probably a white male clerk. Mm. So we need to be, we need to encourage judges to be more intentional and thoughtful about their hiring. Now, being a clerk is challenging, and appellate work is particularly challenging, but there is a large swath of the law school population who can do law clerk work. Sometimes, and this was quoted in the study, you know, students, clerks just need a leg up, and that is important too. Um, judges diversifying their hiring will help us diversify the profession. And Eliza, I'm wondering if you can, you were speaking about this a little bit, but I would love for you to expand on what you'd already said really looking at the benefit of diversity. And so this is something that I've I've talked about with a few of the guests on the show previously. Obviously, there were the recent decisions in the cases of Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions v. UNC that brought an end to affirmative action. And a lot of people uh, looked at affirmative action through the lens of the 1960s where it initially got started and the goal was to correct historical injustice but don't always think about it from the angle that Justice Powell talked about in the Baki decision, where he said that affirmative action is here to support diversity, which confers the educational benefit for all people who are participating in an academic experience. And so it's just not lost on me that when you have less diversity in the pool of applicants or in the ultimate makeup of a judge's chambers, then the perspectives are narrowed as well. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the benefit of diversity and the benefit that's conferred in 
the ultimate judicial opinions that get pushed through in the way that we hash out the, the legal issues um, to get to the right decision when it comes to actual uh, legal decision making. So let's talk about what some of the law clerks do. They do research. They draft orders, opinions, and bench memos. Sometimes, let's be honest, the final draft is done by the law clerk. They help judges with judicial decision making. They go to court with the judge and they take notes on what they see and they discuss afterward with the judge. That is an enormously consequential role to advise judges on issues that affect implicate and implicate litigants' lives livelihoods and liberty and when the thought processes in chambers are not diverse that's going to lead to less fair outcomes for litigants but let's make it concrete let's say we have a low income racially diverse litigant who is unhoused now there's going to be a difference in the perception of that litigant and whatever potential crime they committed if the chambers is two white male clerks and a white male judge or two diverse clerks and a diverse judge the lived experience of the clerks and the judge has implications for the litigants outcomes who appear before these judges so it is critically important to make judicial decisions more fair and equitable we need to diversify law clerks and the judiciary. And by diversifying law clerks, we will diversify the judiciary because many judges' pathways to the bench start with being judicial law clerks. Elisa, turning back to the Legal Accountability Project and the great work that you all are doing, we've talked at length about the, the relationships that you're building with law schools and how that's moving forward your mission. I'm curious to know what role you see judges themselves playing in the organization and what you think judges, um, what role you think judges play in the process of making sure that clerkships and the experience of clerking is fair, equitable, and that their clerks are safe. Judges have an enormous role to play. We have one judge on our board of directors, Judge Nazarian from the Appellate Court of Maryland. We're going to add more judges to the board in the coming year, and we're excited about that. Judges have several roles to play. We appreciate judges conveying their support to law schools because some of the feedback we get from law schools is that they are afraid of pissing off any judges by engaging with the Legal Accountability Project's work in our clerkships database. Now, I and Judge Nazarian and some other judges can all say till we're blue in the face that judges support transparency, diversity, they support this initiative, but law schools definitely need to keep hearing it from judges. So judges should be reaching out, they are, and they should keep reaching out to law schools they attended, law schools from which they hire to convey support. We appreciate that many judges are circulating our post-clerkship survey, which is available at survey.legalaccountabilityproject.org to their law clerk families. We want more judges to keep circulating it and saying that they support transparency. Nobody is above being reviewed. Mm. Judges also have a role to play in their own courthouses in ensuring safe, supportive work environments for their clerks, at being good managers and thinking through their role as manager and mentor, and enforcing judicial accountability. Now, there is no training for judges as managers, which is problematic because judges are not appointed based on their experience as good managers. They're really appointed based on a judicial philosophy or political ideology. Every judge should be thinking about how they interface with young clerks, how they provide feedback, how they create a respectful, mutually respectful work environment. For judges who know that their colleagues are mistreating their clerks, and judges do, it is about pulling them aside, it is about calling out that bad behavior. And ultimately, judges, particularly federal judges, have a role to play in getting the Judiciary Accountability Act over the finish line. Individual rank and file judges, judiciary leadership needs to hear from you and so does Congress, because the AO, the Judicial Conference, do not represent all judges and they are holding up reform, they are holding up accountability, and a lack of accountability in our judiciary really affects everybody, whether you clerked or not, whether you're a judge or not, whether you're an attorney or not. Eliza, you recently testified before the D.C. Council about oversight 
um, over reforms to the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, which is the regulatory body for D.C.'s local judges. Can you just talk a bit about what that experience was like and what the results of that testimony were? So I am chuckling because the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure is a particularly unaccountable and incompetent regulatory body, (laughs) basically set up to protect misbehaving judges. That was a really challenging but certainly necessary experience. The D.C. Commission has failed to hold judges accountable for decades. They failed to report data on the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints for like the four or five previous years. Um, They dismissed my complaints, and yet I pursued other accountability mechanisms anyway, and they really don't love what I am doing. Um, It was hard to get up there before the two judges who chair the commission and to share my experience and to know that they were going to then attempt to refute it. Um, And that was really hard. to know that really the only detractors of LAP's work are like the two judges who failed to adjudicate my judicial complaint is really troubling. Um, they seem to have implemented some reforms in terms of data transparency, which are good, but that is the floor and not the ceiling. Um, I've had people reach out to me who've read my testimony and say, my um, House Judiciary testimony and say, I don't know who you clerked for, but that could describe a dozen judges in the D.C. courts. It is outrageous that that, that judges are not held accountable in D.C., and we need to hold them accountable under the Judiciary Accountability Act as well. So it was very very taxing, but it was really important. Um, And I, I speak for a lot of law clerks when I speak out, and so I am mindful of that, too. Lisa, is there anything else that you would like to say to our listeners about the work that you're doing at the Legal Accountability Project? Yeah, so right now we are trying to get more law schools on board to support this Clerkships Database initiative. If you are a law student, a clerk, an alum of a law school, tell your law school why this would be valuable to you, why you think students deserve more information and not less about judges. I have not encountered a single person who thinks there is enough information about judges accessible to law students. So if you agree with what we're doing, tell your law school to get on board. We need students and alums demanding change. This is a movement and we want every single law school to make some changes. Eliza Schatzman is president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project a nonprofit organization with the mission of ensuring that law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who do not. Eliza, thank you again so much for all of the wonderful work that you were doing, and thank you for joining me on the DEI podcast. Thank you. And that's it for our episode on judicial accountability with Eliza Schatzman. Thanks for listening. The DEI podcast is produced by Notre Dame Studios. If you liked what you heard today, then become a subscriber and get notified every time we release a new episode. The podcast will be taking a brief hiatus during the holiday season, but we'll be back in January to highlight more important voices and share more conversations on issues that touch us all. Until then, have a safe and happy holiday and take good care.